Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Andy, I've had a... <laughs> it's been one of those days. Do you know those days that are just miserable? Mm. But you can't put your finger on why. Hmm. Or do you know those days? Like I just woke up. I went on my run, and uh, my knees are hurting. Well, that bums me out. Come home, I hurt my heel. Get back here, I, 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 I don't know what happened. Like I sat down at my desk, and I opened up my feed reader to look at the news for the day, and then suddenly it was like 1.30. Like the whole day is just gone. It was just me messing around on the internet. <laughs> this is what Those happens. Are great days. The kids go to school and I, I, I lose time. I think I, I blacked out. And then I came back. I ruined dinner. Had to make that twice. Ended, oh, up, ended up serving soupy chicken water as an mm. enchilada sauce. Had to fix that. That was a mess. I hear only the finest restaurants in, in Gay Paris serve that. <laughs> <laughs> soupy chicken water. Yep. Soupy. So <laughs> this uh, le soupe de chicken. Uh, uh, oh man, uh, pool. Uh, what's water? Isn't it ooh? Ooh. Oh. 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 It's o, not ooh. I don't it's know. o. <laughs> oh. <dear. laughs> Soupy chicken water. I uh, yeah. So uh, that's that man. And then you know it's just a thing. Uh, please tell me you've had a better day than I have. Yeah, I did. It was such a great day. Really? <laughs> no, it was fine. Are was you just showing day. off now? I'm just showing off. I'm bragging. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing but perfect days down here, Pete. <laughs> That's right. I hear you guys are in another bit of. There's another crazy dude shooting people. Yeah, it's <laughs> you. You probably drive that 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 path, right? I do. I do every day. Your head Not down. Now. <laughs> Not now. That's yeah. scary, man. It is, you know, you know, crazy people who decide to shoot up highways. It is a little freaky, so. Oh. Especially when you got the whole family in the car. It's like, yeah, this is probably not the best place to be. Do you get them a helmet? Do you get everybody a helmet? You know, I should. I you should. should, but you know what? In the spirit of Sophie's choice, you should only get two other helmets. Jeez. <laughs> oh, what? Too far? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you are a dark, dark human being. This is being. the kind you this is a bad day. Day. <laughs> I opened our conversation tonight telling you where my head is right now. And I think, I sort of blame you. What are we even doing doing this movie? This is a horrible movie. I watched it last night. I haven't seen it in 25 years. And as the movie ends, I know why now. It was horrible then because I was a child. Who let me watch this movie when I was a youth? Uh, why would I do that? It was terrible then. And it's even worse now that I have children. That's where my head is. Can't wait. You. Can't wait to dig into this one. Ah, <laughs> oh, good. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> I think with that, we should tell the people where we're from. <laughs> yeah, where are we? Oh, wait, we did that backwards. <laughs> I 
did, but I was trying to set you up because it's, it's just such a dark open. Uh, well, uh, okay. That, where that's are we from, Pete? Where, I'll th- well, I'll tell you where we're from, Andy. This is The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil <laughs> movies. Tonight on the show, our fourth and final film in our Meryl Streep series with Alan J. Pakula's 1982 film, Sophie's Choice. Some would say her biggest comedy hit yet. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've seen Sophie's Choice and you're the kind of person who gets to the end and thinks, yeah, I got this. You should head over to Instagram.com slash the next reel and play the next reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, how did our expert decision makers do this week? They did pretty good. I was wondering uh, who would figure this out. Uh, yeah, I threw a little bit of a an easy gimme, I think, in for image three. But uh, in the spirit of last week's Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me, I did yet another fun spy spoop, our man Flint from 1966. And Fegfee was able to figure it out in uh, on day three. And it was just, you know, a lot of fun images from a, a fun spy movie. The best part, I think, is the name of the, the good guys organization is the Zonal Organization for World Intelligence and Espionage, a.k.a. Zowie. <laughs> I like the, uh, I love it. I've never seen this movie, but I got a major laugh out of, I think it was image three, uh, The Adventures of Point Triple O Eight. Right, right. That's an image for yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. I but I've never seen it. James Colburn. Uh, I, it, I it sounds like I need to put this on the list. It's a our man Flint and in like Flint are fun little spice moves from the sixties. Yeah. So definitely, definitely fun ones worth checking out if you're yeah. into like the James Bond sorts of things. Yeah, flushing steel barrels of ex- liquid exotica into the sewer system. Is that what that is? <laughs> You'll have to see the movie. Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> Uh, you know we have uh, we have blot spot update. Well, yes, we do. Do you want? Would you like to read it? Or would you like me to? I think I should, since it involves. I, me. It really <laughs> is directed to you. I think that's important. <laughs> Go ahead, Andy. I don't know why you naturally assumed I would hate this movie as much as Pete did. Wink. Uh, surprisingly, I found it engaging, particularly because of how well Irons and Streep played the two different parts. The one scene where they were rehearsing showed just how talented Streep is, because you could see her entire demeanor change in an instant when she shifts from actress to role. It's not o- it's not one I'll likely watch ever again because it did move very slow, and I couldn't get a proper handle on Sarah's motivation, but I certainly didn't hate it. Your rank 182 out of 200, my rank 125 out of 200. Right there, that's the so. bombshell right there. Yes, I know. So I was surprised by that, Ben, but I'm I'm happily surprised. I'm glad that uh, this was a movie that uh, you did enjoy, despite having some uh, a bit of a slow pace to it and everything. I am thrilled that uh, that you didn't hate it. Me too, me too. Because sometimes you know, you know, Ben, Ben, the blot spot, the Ben's role is as a barometer of of you know public appreciation of these movies. That's what Ben is the person I'm thinking of whenever we do these things now. I wonder if he knows that. He is our he is my avatar. That's right. <laughs> and how, how, did, how did we do this week? <laughs> I I too am really surprised that there is that 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 we uh we parted uh on yeah. that one in that direction. Uh 
But I'm glad, I'm glad too. And and you know what? This is the winky uh, winky hate in that first line. <laughs> the winky hate. I did not hate this movie. I'm never watching it again because it's boring. But I didn't hate it. <laughs> if I if I said I hated the French Lieutenant's Woman, I I don't hate. There are movies I hate, uh, but I you try to use that uh, sparingly. Yeah, I don't think you said you hated it, but no. you certainly said you found it impossibly boring. <laughs> In, impenetrable, I think, was a word that I yes, used I, for it. it was I impenetrable. Andy, I think it's time for us to do trailers. Let's do them. I'm going to go first um, because you need the setup. Okay. <laughs> now, you first, you handed me a trailer, which I have turned away. Uh, because it just doesn't live up to your trailer tonight. And so I picked my own. Uh, mine is called Room. It is a modern-day story about the boundless love between a mother and child. Young Jack knows nothing of the world except for the single room in which he was born and raised. Now, the, that sounds really sweet, the way they write it. Uh, but the trailer gives you this sense that maybe they were, uh, that this is a, a mother who was somehow kidnapped. She was imprisoned and gave birth to this child who has spent, you know, all of his... Um, his whole life in this single room. and like Eight years. Yeah, eight years. And so, you know, there are some very sweet clips of him saying good morning to the sink and good morning to the table, et cetera. It's, it's really adorable. And then to get out, she rolls him in a, in a, um, uh, up in a rug and smuggles him out uh, and then is reunited with him when she also escapes. And so he actually gets out and, and sees the world for the first time and has to become the savior character as an eight-year-old. And it, 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 uh, it really struck a chord for me as just a clever um, approach to uh, the Truman Show vibe, and uh, I really enjoyed this trailer. Film uh, comes from uh, director Lenny Abramson, uh, and Lenny Abramson we know because Lenny Abramson's behind Frank, and I don't know, we've never done Frank on the show, but I really, really liked the movie Frank from 2014. I had a great time with it. It's really bizarre. Um, and um, he also is behind uh, what Richard did in 2012, uh, which I did not see, uh, but I hear uh, I, I've heard some pretty good things about that too. So, um, it, film stars uh, Brie Larson, Joan Allen, William H Macy, like all those guys, uh, and what I hear this Jacob Tremblay fellow as the young boy is somebody we're going to be talking about in the future. Yeah, he looks great. Um, the story looks really really strong haunting it looks like a, a story that in uh in a different angle it could very much be uh kind of a suspense thriller but the angle that they're taking it looks really interesting more just kind of the post uh dealing with everything after this escape and after this um world that they've been stuck in for so long and now really kind of enjoying and learning about the real world and it looks really touching it definitely looks like there's still some some elements in it that look dark like you know dealing with uh you know finding the guy who had kidnapped them getting arrested and stuff like that but for the most part it looks like a really strong haunting touching character piece and uh, yeah I'm excited for it, man. You know what I think looks really good is that, you know, I think they really did, uh, and I hope so, I'm going to put this on the record. It looks to me like a very well-balanced trailer that doesn't give me too much of a sense that this is a super dark thriller a la Prisoners, uh, or that this is a light kind of meeting the world comedy, like, you know, kind of a more of a sensitive 
take on the Truman Show, it it really does look balanced to me, and it makes me feel like I know what I'm getting, even though I don't know how it's going to unfold. And I really yeah. liked. I think they did a good job with the trailer. It is a, it's a it's a nice trailer. I agree. I agree. It's October sixteenth, two thousand fifteen. So uh, just next month. Mark your calendars. There you go. Fan- fantastic. All right, bring the uh, holiday cheer. Well, mine is <laughs> mine is a, a merry little Christmas film that I think looks really fascinating. And uh, Fasc- is that the word fascinating that you want? It is the word. It is the word. <laughs> fascinating and frightening. It's uh, it's called Krampus, and it's kind of it's labeled as a comedy fantasy horror. And <laughs> I have never heard of this Krampus Christmas demon that apparently is like making waves in in the film world right now because there are many movies about uh, Krampus that have come out recently or are coming out. 2013, look at this, Krampus the Christmas Devil. Exactly. There was a short in 2012. There was another short this year. There's another The Krampus in development. There is Krampus uh, Beware the Krampus in in 2016. And there's also Happy Krampus that's in development. Not to mention the other trailer that Jeez. I was uh, gonna that I wanted you to do, which was uh, what was it called? A Christmas horror story? Yeah, another which, Krampus in which, story in which Santa battles the Krampus and the elves turn to zombies. <laughs> so he is the thing right now. Everybody has latched onto this great new horror icon, and all of a sudden it's going to turn into a thing, and there's going to be Krampus everywhere. You and watch now Halloween? Kids... Yeah, it's going to be a Krampus. That's going to be the big thing. Yep. This Halloween, you're going to be Krampus. That's what I'm going to be. So anyway, Krampus is like this big Christmas demon that basically if you, um, you know, I don't know if you just piss Santa off or if you basically have no Christmas spirit, then Krampus might come and visit you and basically destroy everything. And it looks it looks pretty terrifying, but it looks like it's got a strong cast, a really interesting uh, kind of horror angle with some of that comedy vibe. Um, Adam Scott is in it. Tony Collette is in it. And... It just it, and uh, who else was in it? Allison Tolman, David Keckner, and it's got a great bunch of faces facing off with this funky, hooved, ginormous Christmas demon thing. And I think it just looks fun and creepy, and I really kind of can't wait to see it. I uh, I'm I'll tell you what makes me most curious about this. Uh, is that um, uh, Michael Doherty? This is a Michael Doherty film, and that is right. I forgot to mention that he is behind. He was on the writing team uh, with Dan Harris and David Hayter behind uh, X Men Two in two thousand three, which I uh, really, really liked in terms of the X Men series. I was a big fan of that. He is also uh, behind. Uh, he's back on X Men uh, with X Men Apocalypse coming out in twenty sixteen, uh, and you know he did Superman Returns, and I think a lot of people didn't didn't like that one but i really did and uh so he's definitely a uh he's a brian singer um yes. guy uh over a legendary and so i i think he just has a really interesting sensibility he also has some other you know horror films under his that i'm sure you have well that's seen what i love. that's what i forgot to mention trick-or-treat is a fantastically fun uh halloween horror anthology and it's it's just great fun and he's actually has announced that he's going to do a trick-or-treat too which thrills me to no end because i just i really enjoyed trick-or-treat and feel more people need to see that uh that gem why why did was it so good anna paquin yeah it's a really fun uh you know i love horror anthologies first of all but having them all 
focusing on Halloween with these different uh, angles. It was just it was a fun take on the horror anthology, having them all focused on on Halloween and doing really just fun little short stories with it. I, I had a blast. Awesome. And 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 I think they came up with a really fascinating little. Um, I, the, I don't know if it's if it's like the what I'd call it, but like the little demon creature that's kind of on all the marketing for that was a really fascinating new kind of horror character. And I'd love to see that character kind of evolved as, uh, you know, as any other franchise does. Well, I'm sure you'll have it. And this is coming out uh, December 4th. Andy. Yes. I need you like a biliary calculus. Pelagrencephalitis. Bright's disease, for Christ's sake. Parsonoma of the brain. I need you like death. Do you hear me? Like death. Back to Krakow, baby. There are secrets beyond imagination. There are memories time cannot erase. It was a season of delight in a place called Brooklyn. The season of Sophie. Of Sophie and Nathan and a young man called Stingo. I love that piece. Secrets we have yet to imagine. One of them is Sophie's choice. Here we are, Andy. Sophie's choice. Mm. Not the opera. Sophie's choice. No. The 2002 opera. Not the book, the William Styron book. No. No. We're talking about the film. Sophie's Choice. Uh, the film is from our friend, uh, Alan J. Pakula, our dear friend of the show. Only because we've talked about him before. <laughs> That's right. Uh, written, obviously, by, the, by William Styron. Uh, it was actually adapted by uh, Pakula himself, who did the screenplay. Stars Meryl Streep, Kevin Klein, and Peter McNichol. Uh, and uh, other people, but nobody really cares about them because these three are, are they really steal it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they do. Uh, how how'd you do this time? When, first of all, when was the last time you saw it? 
Last time I saw it, um, I've seen this film twice before. Once, I think, the first time I think was in college, and then the second time was probably 15 years ago. I Okay. I've seen it only once, and it was uh, it was in college. I was at home. I watched it with my parents. Uh, it was like my sophomore year, summer, sophomore year, something like that. Okay. How did you do? I I mean, I, I remembered a lot about this film. There's a lot that's hard to forget about this film. <laughs> I um, And there's also things that I remembered of the things that I don't like. A lot of that really stuck with me. There were elements of the film that um, I, I definitely appreciated more. And all of the things that I don't like about the film... Um, are still there. I, I can understand why it's all there, but uh, it it makes the film for me a a film to watch to enjoy, if that's the right word, and appreciate what Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein are doing here, um, and the power of that element of the story, um, in particular the flashbacks. Um, but the the other parts of the film just make it something that I just, I, I end up finding being, I don't want to say a slog, but I do find to be, I just find it a strange story structure, I guess. And it doesn't work for me. Oh, I'm relieved to hear you say that. And I, I agree with you. I, I think this is a movie you see because it is such an exemplar of the craft of acting um, that, you know, and that, that's why it holds up uh, for me, but it's not a tremendous film. Uh, no, for me, it's not a it's not a, a film that really lives up to the hype of the acting. It's a film that serves as a frame around a horrific bit of humanity, and I, I don't think it does an exceptionally good job of really addressing the humanity at work there. It just kind of throws it at you, and uh, and and then you're done, and then you're done. Um, I I really enjoy, uh, particularly really enjoy Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline. This is where I, I met all three of these characters um, with Peter McNichol, too. This is where I sort of feel like I, I met them. And obviously, I'd, I'd already seen um, Fish Called Wanda, and so I, I felt like I was already buddies with Kevin Kline. But seeing him so young was was really a, a treat. Um, and, and uh, of course, Meryl Streep, who just... As I was sending you messages last night, I feel like she is is a once in a generation talent uh, in terms of a character actress who is who you know who is able to pull off feats of of delivery like Sophie um, in in such an incredible way. Uh, she's just mesmerizing throughout. It's. Um... It really is mind-boggling to watch her and think about what she's doing and realize that, uh, oh, this is, uh, this is the same woman who was, in, was Sarah in French Lieutenant's Woman. Oh, she was in Kramer vs. Kramer. Oh, she was in The Deer Hunter. Oh, mm-hmm. she's in all these movies. And it's like she inhabits characters so well that, I mean, she really becomes lost in it. And it's... It's it just boggles my mind as I watch her that this is the same person that we've been watching this far. She's just so different, and she's a hundred percent in this character. Yeah, and I, and I think that's really important to look at just how far she came, how quickly, right? I mean, Deer Hunter was only seventy eight 
you know, this is four years between that that first film that we last saw her, and to see her not only just grow in prominence in each film, but then to pull off something where she, I mean, she she went and learned Polish for crying out loud, uh, just so she could get the accent right. Um, and uh, it and, is and German <laughs> and German, right? It is transformative. I mean, it is really it it is transformative. It's an amazing, amazing role to to watch her uh, deliver this, and and so uh, that that's why that's why you show up. But then now let's let's talk about then what the things that don't work for you. The I haven't read the book. My understanding of the book is it's it is similar in. In structure, the the book, the story is really, and this is this is my biggest problem. Um, even though I understand why they did it, the story is Stingo's story. Stingo is this young writer who comes up from the South to New York and Brooklyn um, to try to make it, and ends up in this um, boarding house where he befriends this uh, Jewish guy, Nathan Landau, and Sophie this uh, Polish woman who survived the concentration camps and their couple, and he kind of befriends them. And it's, it's his story. And we're looking at everything from his point of view. And I appreciate that. I understand that that's how William Styron, who wrote the novel, chose to go about this. And I think it's an interesting structure. I do, I, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying about how the bit of the awfulness of, of humanity that we, are confronted with at the ending is kind of thrown at us. What I appreciate about the way the structure um, gives that to us is that it is painting a very interesting portrait over the course of the film of this woman, of Sophie. And I like the way that that is done. I like how we get these little bits and these lies that they tell themselves and tell others and how all of that gets peeled back and peeled back until finally we get this revelation at the end. Which and is which we, is the complexity of her, right? That she is, and right. I, my understanding is in the book, it is much more of a of a journey of sort of psychosis for her, where she is, you know, she's the daughter of a of a um, a um, sympathizer. Uh, he's right. Polish, and he's an enemy of of uh, the Reich, but uh, he also it was for the the extermination of the Jews. And so that puts her in a very complicated place. And so throughout the film, we get this, you know, she she doesn't know which which line to walk. Is she going to lie and say she's a sympathizer so she can save her family, or is she going to, you know, be true to herself? So I agree with you. Yeah, and, and so I, I really enjoy this character study of Sophie and watching kind of these layers get peeled back until we are left with this raw core of who she is and why she is the way she is. And that leads to kind of her destruction, really, and, and she, as she kind of ends up self-destructing, so to speak, with Nathan at the end of the film. Um, but I really don't like Stingo. <laughs> I have such a problem. I have so little interest in him. All of my interest lies in the story of Nathan and Sophie. And I, I just I don't appreciate what the story is doing with... Um, with him and I just don't feel it's very interesting and I just I I I I get that it's kind of the writer's view and you're getting the story through his eyes and I like I said I like the way that that structure falls it's just I my I my interest is not in this character and it's so frustrating having to spend so much time with him um as he you know is a part of their lives that's interesting that's- I I don't have a problem with him I 
because and I, and I think it's because I I really like Peter McNichol as an as an actor, uh, and I love seeing him as a kid, you know, parading around on stage. This is you know his the character of Singo really is the character of William Styron. I mean, you can't you can't watch William right. Styron interviewed and and hear him talking about you know the character of Stingo and not get that this is his story from the boarding house. You know, the boarding house was a place where he uh, got the idea for this book, and he met this woman, this Polish woman, who was sort of transformative in his experience. He didn't write the book until much later, but this was very much his story. And and so, you know, I think he serves as as a uh, as a narrative tool for me that that helps kind of move the story forward. I I think as I reflect on the sort of the first half of the film versus the last half of the film, I really enjoy the first half of the film. You get this sort of Great Gatsby vibe with a lot more agita, you know? I mean, it's a, you, you get this sort of three of them kind of the craziness of Nathan and and what are we learning from each other? And he has such a crush on, on Nathan and Nathan reads the book and everything's great. And as you learn more about Nathan and how Nathan's life falls apart, um, Stingo's character becomes more and more sort of um, uh, precarious uh, in terms of his utility. And and I think that's where I you know by the end when uh, Stingo loses his virginity to Sophie uh, in in this final kind of bumbling romantic uh, wash across the screen, uh, which I understand was a lot more explicit in the book, and I, I too haven't read the book, but I read some uh, segments from the book, and it was really sexual, like not just sexual, but but masochistic, and and. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it was interesting kind of the things that they were forced to, to cut. Um, uh, there was one, uh, well, uh, for later. The, anyway, the deal with Stingo is he just, when he, he wants to take her out of the farm and, and marry her and fall in love with her, and, and I just found at that point, um, I felt like Stingo, uh, I, I had lost the thread of Stingo's participation. I was no longer really interested in, in what he had to to say or do, he w- he was not a competent rescuer uh, for her, and I and it was like he was trying to fill the role of the rescuer, but he wasn't written strong enough. Well, and uh, yes, and I think that's uh, all of that becomes my biggest problem with Stingo as a character in the film is I don't feel like there's enough there to feel to make me feel like there's reason for him to really be the person who needs to be in this role in the book from my understanding is like I said, Stingo is from the South and, and it's brought up much more that there has been a lot of awful stuff going on in the South in American history, Mm -hmm. slaveholding, lynching, all that awful stuff. And, and there's an interesting, a more interesting comparison between the Nazis and the, the slave owners. And, and that's something that is more, uh, addressed in the book because Stingo is one of the reasons that he's writing this book is because he is dealing with his own family's uh, past and the fact that they had slaves in his past. And that becomes something that is more complex. And I find that that would have been a much more interesting comparison and I would have found much more interesting with Stingo. And then also Stingo is more... Um, as far as the relationship goes, he's, he is, I mean, he's still young, but there is more strength to his character and more drive for him to be an actual almost competitor with Nathan as far as um, um, uh, Sophie's affections. Not so much, in, I mean, it's, it's, it's not 
you know, vocalized per se, but as he kind of continues coming to her rescue, it, you do get a better sense in the book that there is this real strong urge that he has to be um, in her life and, and woo her away from Nathan and all of that. And that's just completely not there in, in the movie at all. And he's just in the movie. He's just so, so sympathetic, almost just like he's just a friend and just wants to take care of her. Yeah. I think that's really it, isn't it? Because, and, and that's what I'm feeling in the second half of the film is that, that it's, it's out of balance because we don't have a strong reason for him to be there beyond jokes that Nathan tells yeah. early on in the film and, and to, to relegate um, the discussion of slavery and lynching and America's history with, um, you know, with, uh, completely devaluing other people's in a film that is all about um you know the the nazis completely devaluing other peoples around the world uh and it is it does a disservice to the whole parallelism of the of the narrative and uh, i really agree with that i think uh, uh and you know i think that that largely from what I know of the book, is the the ethical function foundation of Styron's book is is to be able to really think deeply about you know the humanity and I'm I'm I feel like that is lost. Um, the other thing that I think it does, if if you if you kind of play it out to its logical next step, is that it gives you more of a sense of where Nathan is because Nathan is the guy in between uh, both of these kind of ethical narratives, right? He is, he's the Jew who wasn't able to go to war because of his psychiatric condition. Uh, he is at home, and he's fascinated by all of these Nazis who are able to go free. Uh, and here he meets this this fellow from the Deep South who represents the, um, you know, for him, the, uh, the, the uh, leadership of this uh, mentality of subservience, right? I mean, he is, he's a Southerner, and so we're going to go ahead and play that out and say, you know, he, he represents what the Nazis represent uh, to Nathan's character. And I think that makes a much more kind of palpable uh, existence for Nathan, a much more interesting character study for Nathan than, than I think is on display in the film. 100%. I completely agree. And I would, you know, happily remove the entire what is it, five-minute subplot with Leslie Lapidus? I mean, I couldn't even figure out what the heck that was doing well, in the film. Well, there was pointless. It was, it was just a complete waste of time. And, and focus on more of this other information that I feel is so much more pertinent to the story. Because uh, I think that if you go back to Stingo's role as a, as a simple, dumb narrative tool, you're playing short the, the promise of, of his character. And as a narrative tool, he goes to meet Leslie Lapidus. Right, because it's it's almost as if we forgot, or Pakula forgot, or ignored the fact that this really isn't Stingo's story, right? And wanted it's, it to be Stingo's story. I think that he and just like Styron had that identification with the storyteller, the person who's narrating, and they wanted to kind of keep that alive. And you know that is kind of um, a difficult thing. I understand when you're adapting a novel is trying to find that thread, but I do think that Pakula really latched on to that narrator as himself. Yep. 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 Totally agree. Uh, violent agreement, violent agreement. We're in violent agreement. That's right. (laughs) Um, okay. So we've talked about, uh, Meryl Streep. Do you have any other comments on, uh, uh, Meryl Streep? I just I think that she's uh, stunning in this. Uh, She actually 
really wanted this role so, so badly that she went to Pakula and actually got down on her knees and and basically begged him, saying, I need to be in this film. I really need to be in this film. And uh, thank God he did, because the other options... <laughs> Goldie Hawn was one of the options. <laughs> and, I, that, one, that one gave me a chuckle, but <laughs> Ursula Andress, you know? And I mean, Ursula Andress is like, right. <laughs> yeah. Liv Ullman, who I did not know, or Magdalena Vascharova, um, Liv Ullman, I could have seen uh, do it. She's uh, a fantastic um, Swedish actress yeah. that um, I think could have carried it. And actually, she was on board to do it. She was Pakula's choice. But because he took two years to adapt this book into the script, she uh, had another project come up and ended up, have, ended up having to drop out. So, so I guess we have, uh, yeah, but we have that. Thank God that uh, that <laughs> happened because uh, we were able to see Meryl Streep do this. That's right. Uh, she is, uh, she's amazing. You know, she, I, I watched a bit of an interview with her um, uh, leading up to this. Uh, I, I also watched clips of her performances on the Ellen DeGeneres show. So I, I found a, found my way into a rat hole as I was researching. <laughs> you know, they played the, uh, the, the accent game. You know where where Ellen would put an accent on top of her head, and then uh, Meryl Streep would have to do the accent, and then they'd have to go back and forth guessing. You know that you know how that game works. I don't know that uh, game at all. <laughs> You're not even with me it? anymore. <laughs> ah, I all I heard was clicking. I felt like you were like you know I'm done. I'm just gonna go browse the web. <laughs> I'm sorry. Who? Are, oh, sorry. Are you still on the line here? <laughs> Anyhow, so I watched these no, generous. Are you gonna clips. are you gonna put it in show notes? It, yeah, no, I will not do that. I will not <laughs> subject anyone else to it. The point is, I watched this thing about it, and she says, uh, she says, you know, she uh, she refused to do this in more than one take. She said, I can only do the choice scene. It's like this five minute monologue, and the and then the experience of actually doing it. She said, I can only do this once, and then she never watched it until like. 20 years later, she she was a guest on another talk show. I think it was Oprah. Yeah, she was on Oprah, and Oprah played the the sequence. She said, this is the first time I've ever actually seen it on screen. It's um, She said when she read the script, she was only able to read it once, and then she had to put it away, and she knew it was coming. She knew she'd have to do it one day, yep. but uh, she didn't want to even read it again. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Surprised she even showed up no. to work that day. It's just a long it's... movie, and then a sequence is just told in title cards. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a silent film. Right. Storyboards. Yeah. Um okay, Kevin Klein. I he's brilliant in this film. This is his first film. I mean, he kind of came out of the gate running. Uh did a, just an absolutely fantastic job with this film and clearly uh is somebody who warrants having a great film career. He's not always my favorite. There are plenty of times when he's in something and I just feel like there's something about him in the role that doesn't work for me. But that being said, I do generally enjoy seeing him on screen. Was it Wild Wild West? Is that the film you're thinking about? <laughs> no, I can't even I can't even think about it because my wife was like, what are you talking about? And I actually <laughs> had to start going through stuff. I'm like, what is it that I didn't like? And and I know there are things out there. I just I haven't been able to pinpoint it. Um, you know, I... I think I've already told you I'm a big fan of the uh, the Ice Storm. 
Which was uh, Ang Lee. Ang Lee directed this one in um, 1997. It was fantastic. You can find it on Criterion. Uh, but of course, the one that you know that hits me is is uh, Fish Called Wanda, and that's that's the first thing I ever saw him in, and that's just kind of he's always close to my heart. So it doesn't really matter what he's in. I'm gonna like it. Um, and I, it may be a guilty pleasure, but I, I really, I really do like it. Uh, Pirates was, of Penzance. I don't, I don't think that it's fair to call uh, Fish Called Wanda a guilty pleasure. I think the movie is way too good. No, no, no. And I'm not calling that. I'm saying other films that he is in. Oh, okay. That <laughs> that maybe aren't uh, great. Let's say The January Man. I would it, say Soap Dish. That would be Soap for me Dish. That would, that would be one of those. Pleasure. Yes. But then you see things like you know I I really um, I really enjoyed uh, Chaplin um, and yeah. he was in Chaplin he was he was fantastic um, at, with Robert Downey Jr. It was great and so you know he really is he's he's kind of a, a strange sort of uh, hit or miss uh, in in terms of critical acclaim but he is an incredibly talented guy. Sometimes I think the the challenge that I have with him on screen is that I feel like he is giving a performance that is better. Uh, directed at the stage he is such an incredible stage actor and i think some of his habits and and um, techniques are are stage techniques that come off weird on screen that just aren't caught by the director or by whatever it's just it just comes off as as a kevin kleinism and it just feels like man i would love to see that on on the broadway stage or a a broadway stage but um, maybe that's what it is maybe that that sounds that's that's an interesting way to kind of explain it because i do feel like there's little isms with him that maybe trip me up sometimes yeah yeah and it, it, you know it's isms or overacting, right? <laughs> right that gesture right. is too weird or too big or too yep. too much. Uh, he's, there, there isn't a lot of of subtlety or, or f- finesse in a lot of his performances. He's a he's a blunt instrument, uh, but man, when we meet him in this film, the back to Krakow speech is is unreal. I love it. I just love him. Um, you know. As, as just the thuggishness as he just barrels down the stairs of the house is just amazing uh, that, that that's our first meeting of Sophie and Nathan, and he just owns it. After the introduction of the uh, chandelier while there. Well, I guess that's <laughs> true. Love. Yes. Yeah. It's a very interesting contrast of the introduction. We see that, and then we see that explosive fight, which is just amazing. And I sometimes marvel that Stingo is able to maintain a friendship with this man after that one moment. Because it's like, if I saw somebody acting that way toward his girlfriend... Would I ever like that person? I don't know. Yeah, right. Like I, Stinko is awfully forgiving of that. Yeah, yeah, he really is. But again, that that, that goes to the to the the toolishness of Stingo's character, right? I mean, he it, it's it's not a necessarily. He's either really incredibly weak as a person, right, as an observer, uh, or nobody really cares that much about what he's doing on screen. <laughs> right, right. Say what you're going to say and get out of the way. Exactly. Um, all right, but we should talk about Peter McNicholy, the a little bit more the actor. Sure, sure. I don't think I like him nearly as much as you do. <laughs> um, 
I think he's fine. Um, I've never been overly impressed with him. I Dragonheart, uh, not Dragonheart, Dragon, Dragon Slayer, Slayer yeah. was the film where I was introduced to him. Um, not a film that I, I think I liked it a lot more as a youth, and when I watched it older, I really found it kind of a tedious slog. But I really did like him from that film. Um, and I, you know, I guess he's okay here. I just think. I don't think I can blame anything on him. I think the problems I have with Stingo lie in the adaptation and in the directing. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I, I because I think what he does bring, at, just in terms of his physicality, his physical size, just his sort of smallness on screen, is particularly next to Kevin Klein, um, but next to Meryl Streep too. I mean, it's that that sense of fragility and um and and i'm speaking mostly in the first half of the film acknowledging that the second half has issues um i i think that (laughs) sense of the the you know fish out of water experience i think he actually does a pretty good job of it um and uh, and i like watching him i think he's got a he he brought to me that that sort of southern um Southern charming uncertainty that I really wanted to to see out of that character as we got to know him, and I think he does that pretty well. Um, you're right, Dragon Slayer. I I had forgotten mostly because um, I what was the guy's name who was in the Greatest American Hero? William Cat. William Cat. Okay, so I saw Dragon Slayer, and for like 20 years I thought it was William Cat who was in that <laughs> movie, and so it was only when I introduced the movie to my kids that I saw that it was it was uh, actually Peter McNichol. I was I was actually very excited, and you know when they make the shield out of scales, I I like that. Right. Right. Um, that was good. But really, you know, I sort of wish talking about Peter McNichol that we were actually speaking of the 1989 follow up to Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters Two, where he played Doctor Janos Poha, and is was one of my favorite. Uh, characters in the film that's right i said it i outed myself guilty pleasure why, I guess. For, why for you talk to me i i it was not uh it's not great but he was great in it and of course uh ally mcbeal he was great in right it. you know he plays he plays weird well Yes, he does. And that's all I could think of when I saw him was it was like I wanted him to put his finger on his nose and do the little, you know, stop his nose from making a whistle or yes. something. <laughs> yes. He is uh he does a ton of TV, uh, video games, ton of animated stuff. Now he's uh, currently playing Simon Sifter on TV's CSI Cyber uh which I'm not crazy about. Yeah, he's you know, it's 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 an interesting character. I mean, there's interesting character moments like why, I mean, I guess it was 1947 and when you're poor, what do you eat? But cases and cases of spam, you know, <laughs> weird things like that. But it's, uh, I don't know. It just, it just, I didn't connect with it very much. And I, I feel like the character could have been written much more strongly to actually make it fit within the story better so that I really felt there was more of a purpose to the main to the main story which i mean it is really the main story um because uh, i i feel there's so much strength in the backstory of sophie that uh, you know this story of this relationship in the in the 1947 present just isn't there and i think it's all because of stingo yep all right stingo's to blame stingo yep. eats it <laughs> Uh, we want to talk about Nestor Almendros. 
Yeah, we've talked about him uh, fairly recently. Yeah. Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer versus Kramer as a cinematographer. Um, I... Uh, what'd you think? How did he characterize this? I, I think what's interesting about this is this is one of those films where it's very much, uh, it could be a, a stage play. It doesn't, doesn't move too many places. No, uh, but I think he does a great job creating these worlds. The, the present world is lush, vibrant, full of life, full of color, um, just deep shadows, a very rich palette. And then when you cut to the flashbacks of the past, it is all um, sepia. Uh, Pakala was saying that they actually had a real hard time creating this kind of, not sepia, that's the wrong word, but just kind of a desaturated look right. um, in everything in the past. And they had a really hard time. And I could tell watching it because sometimes it looks like it's just black and white. And then sometimes you go, oh, no, there are hints of color in there. And I guess they had a really hard time kind of creating that look. But I do think it's effective, the different looks between the two. I think that he does a great job balancing the worlds between the flashbacks and between the present. I think he does some fun things in the present. I love the shot of Kevin Klein when, um, after he's read Stingo's book and he's um, listening to the the uh, orchestra and he's standing up in the room um, and he's kind of just doing his little conducting thing and you've got all those great reflections around him. Really interesting way to kind of depict... Um, Nathan's character as far as this break that he has internally, uh, you know, this kind of paranoid schizophrenia that he's dealing with. I was trying to figure out as I, as I watched the film, because uh, Nestor, uh, from what I have read is a, is a, um, much more of a natural light cinematographer. Like he really wants to shoot, uh, using natural available light or room light or as authentic light as he can get. And and I think in the apartment, I think you get a lot of that. And I, I, I think he probably wasn't able to do that in the reflection scene just because of the complexity of those reflections and getting them to show up as vibrant as they are. Um, but you can really see it during the choice monologue. They put the camera really far away and they shot it from outside the house um, and, and shot her through... Uh, the, it looks like some sort of a screen or window. Through a window. It's very yeah, soft, yeah. And and uh, and so, you know, to hear Meryl Streep talk about it, she said, I felt completely alone because I was completely alone. Like, they were, they, there was nobody near me doing that. Uh, and you get this, it, it is just gorgeous. I mean, just watching her face move, it looks like a, you know, it's a, a bit of a gift of Renaissance art. You know, it's like a painting. Um, but it's, it is very, it has that very natural, soft, uh, you can tell distant lighting. It it almost looks a little washed out, very yeah. flat. It's um it works really well for that storytelling bit, and I like that quite a bit. And I think it works really well coming from the shot, um, very beautifully composed of her sitting isolated on the the kind of the window bench yeah, the ledge window that they have sure. running along the entire stretch of all those windows that um at night and you just have that beautiful shot of her sitting there before Stingo comes in and kind of sits on the opposite end. Um, very beautiful way to kind of portray her isolation and her loneliness before she starts going into that. Um, all of her horror stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of just the overall composition, I think you're right. And you know, the other one that I forgot is when they go on their little field trip and they, there, there are some really, 
Um, there are a couple of beautiful field trips. First of all, that giant wide angle of the that that pans down a couple of times throughout the film. It becomes this interesting sort of narrative bookmark, the visual bookmark of the bridge of the the Brooklyn Bridge. Right, right, right. Uh, and all the all the the cables on the bridge is just wonderful. Uh, and the other is when they're in that rotating tube. Uh, that right, I think at the, is the, at, at the amusement Island. park. Yeah, Coney Island. I think that is really, really fun, and uh, it, it's beautifully backlit and um, unnatural, and it it makes for an interesting, again, visual kind of cue in the film. Uh, well, and and all of that works really well to to really kind of help highlight this interesting world in which Nathan and Sophie are living, where they've, in order to kind of get through so much of what's going on in their lives, particularly Sophie they're creating these facades all the time of of who they are and and dressing up in costumes and and doing wild crazy things and just kind of going over the top with how they're living and experiencing things um in large part to well for her in large part to kind of forget everything else she wants to push everything down and it uh i think the cinematography does work well to highlight that along with the the costume design and, and the production design, all of that works really well to kind of highlight all of that. Yeah. Anybody else uh, high on your list? Uh, I, I'm sure we're going to get to Marvin Hamlish. Marvin Hamlish. Yes, indeed. Um, the music in this is um, really uh, just haunting themes. I mean, the main theme um, might be a touch overplayed in the film, but it is a really beautiful theme. It's just, it's very powerful, haunting, um, they change it up a few times as far as what instruments play it, but it's just, it really is just a, a, a powerful, strong piece. And uh, then there's an incredibly, incredibly haunting um, flute solo that's played right at the very beginning. And um, a couple other times, uh, it's it's kind of represents the, the daughter's theme, I guess you would call it. I think it's at the beginning and then it's at the part where she's on the train talking about um, her daughter uh, ending up getting incinerated. And uh, uh, just horrible, horrible stuff. But that haunting flute theme, as if played by a young child, is uh, is a very powerful thing to hear throughout. Oh, it's awful. I mean, great, but awful. It really, and, and you know, in this one, I, I'm with you. I think the music, it's possibly overplayed, but by the time you're into it, every time that... that that they it's a betrayal what happens to that uh, to that theme right because you you're introduced to the theme early on and then the theme slowly but surely becomes comes to represent something really horrific yeah and and that only happens very late in the film and i think that's an unusual trope that that they take this this beautiful theme and they turn it into something really diabolical, um, and and so I I think it works really well. It's a it becomes such a great dramatic instrument for me in the film, and I think if you pay attention to the music as you watch uh, this movie, you, it it becomes a really interesting layer, um, and and it was done really well. This ain't no uh, nobody does it better. Uh, he I think uh, old old Marv brought his A game. Absolutely, yeah, it really did. All right. Anybody else high on your uh, list to talk about here? Um, I don't think so. And we talked about, I mean, we've talked about Pakula before. I think he's a strong director. I think, I think he did a strong job here um, with this film. Um, I certainly would probably say I'd prefer the, uh, the Paranoia trilogy that we've discussed before. But I do think this was a, a, a very strong, um, a, 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 I think he, it's a strong character study. 
I think he did a good job of the character study in this film. I, I do too. Uh, and and again, you know, I I may be too harsh on it when I call it sort of a frame around a really horrific moment or, or ideal. Um, it There are some really beautiful things going on in this film, and I, I, I just find it frustratingly sort of... Um, I don't know, slow at times, uh, frustratingly disorganized and uh, toward the the end. And um, and, and I, I wish it could live up to its own promise in this sort of ethical discussion around the parallelism of the U.S. and, and uh, U.S. history and, and uh, European history. I think there was, that's a huge opportunity that I didn't appreciate the last time I saw this. So I, I love that, that bit you brought up there. So Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, just the only other thing is I, I think... There were really interesting elements um, done in the uh, in all of the stuff in Auschwitz, where um, she there's that beautiful shot of Sophie, <laughs> beautiful um, as she's walking through the mud. She's being led through the mud by a guard. We pass like the the I don't know what you call it, just the pen, the jail where they have all the people locked up who are. I Suppose getting ready for incineration, right. and their just arms are reaching out. It's just kind of horrific, and we follow her as she goes up to this this gate, this this wooden door. She goes through, and the camera comes up and over it, and it reveals the the um, I don't know what Hess was. He was kind of like the head guard of Auschwitz, and it's this like lush garden, and there's children playing and frolicking in the garden, and that's just one of those those moments in a film that highlights in such a, a powerful way just how absurd everything was over there at the time and how people are doing this and this is how people are living and it's like they're blind to the realities of the situation that they're actually in it's just it's a really powerful depiction of that to see that uh, dichotomy between the two worlds. Uh, that's a good way to put it. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting is when Sophie goes to steal the radio oh. and she's, she's caught by the daughter, um, by the commandant's daughter and ends up having the, like this really interesting scene. I think that may be one of my favorite scenes in the film because this kid initially is like looking at her like she's just uh you know dirt she's you know just somebody who's caught in the wrong place and she's going to go tell her mommy sort of thing and then it kind of shifts and it's it's like i don't know it's such an interesting scene written so well for a child and i was mesmerized by that scene and mesmerized by this child actress playing this role because the way that she shifts throughout the scene and going from you know i'm going to tell on you you're going to steal my radio to um you know helping sophie after she passes out and 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 kind of getting her on her on her feet and then sitting there and going through her scrapbook album and showing her photos of like what her swimming competition in 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 Dachau and things like that. It's such an interesting look at the world of the Nazis and the mentality of these people who are in it, particularly the children and how they're just kind of basically brainwashed by their parents and, but done so well for, for a child performer and written so well for this, this child. It's just such a, a powerful scene that I think really hit home very well. You know, I'm glad you brought that scene up because I, I first absolutely agree with you, chapter and verse. I think you're right. And 
the interesting thing I wanted your reflection on, given the the stuff that happens in Germany, the entire film is uh, is a fiction, right? It's a it's a complete fiction, and yet there is one character in here. Um, well, I guess the family, right? Rudolf Hess is the uh, commandant in in uh, Auschwitz, and he is a that he was a real Nazi, and and Emmy Hess, as far as I understand, was his daughter, and they are they are playing real characters in a fictional film doing fictional things there is no report that that this happened specifically in Germany there is you know the the experience of Sophie's choice the choice itself is attributed to um you know one or two other not not terribly um uh i don't know concrete examples that this actually ever really sort of happened but um but it's a horrible thing and what do you think about having this this real uh, real life Nazi in a in a foreign film? Why do you think they did that? I was wondering about that too um, because I had read that as well, and I thought it was so strange that of all the people, there ends up being that one person who or and the family who is is pulled from reality and placed into this environment. The I mean, the only thing that makes sense to me is Styron was just like, well, hey, that person was really there. I will put them there because it's a great way to uh, to ground things a little more. But I don't know. It's just it's it's strange to me. But I mean, I guess in one sense, it's like okay, by putting the real person who is running Auschwitz there, um, who Sophie interacts with, it it does create a stronger sense of reality for the film because okay, she was dealing with the real person there. Um, I mean, I guess I can see that. It's like if Hitler walked in. I mean, it's not like you're going to fictionalize Hitler, you know. So no, I mean, you know, ask uh, uh, ask uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino, right? Yeah. So um, you could ask him or ask the movie. If you're right, kind of, right, right. If you're kind of slow. <laughs> so, Whichever, I don't care. Yeah. It's been a day. <laughs> but but you know, it's one of those things where I guess. You know, where is the level of, of who you decide to stop depicting? If if it was if it was Goebbels, would you fictionalize him or put the real one in? Um, so I guess it doesn't bother me so much. But it did actually get me thinking back to the Deer Hunter and the conversations we had there about the, the storytelling and what's and and creating fictional stuff in a real in a real right. situation. And it made me wonder. I mean, it was interesting to read that you know this awful choice that Sophie is forced upon her of choosing a child is was actually done or and like you said the examples don't seem that concrete but it seems like something was there but um but it did bring me back to the deer hunter and that whole aspect of where do you draw the line when you're fictionalizing versus telling a real story and I don't know I mean I guess it doesn't bother me that Hess was in it but you know, I, don't know. I, I guess the question for me is: Would the film have been any less powerful if they had used, if they had anonymized the German, the my family? Wife, my wife pointed something out to me: the fact that this film, um, no, sorry, this uh, that it seems so long ago that that all of this stuff happened, but this uh, we were we were kids in the eighties, and for us. It was 30 years before, uh, 30 to 40 years before. And now, where we are now, our kids are about 
as old as as you know we would have been at the time that all this happened and if you look at where we are now and where and and, and our lifespan it's like that would have happened in our lifespan yes and so I think having that real character there might have grounded it more for people when they read this book in 1980 or whenever the book came out. That's a really good point. You should keep her around. <laughs> that, is a, that is a great sense of, of historic. It, it becomes a sort of pivot point around historical perspective for, for right. its target audience at the time. That's great. Yeah. All right. You, you said that much more succinctly than I did. Thank you. No, you did fine. We got there. Uh, phew. Hey, uh, how did it do? This film did uh, did pretty well for itself. Um, it um, it cost, from what I found, it cost twelve million to make, which in today's dollars is just under twenty nine million. And uh, then for domestic gross, it ended up making just over thirty million, or adjusted, that's about uh, just over seventy-two million. So it made its money back. I couldn't find anything about international figures, but it ended up making adjusted about two hundred ninety thousand dollars per finished minute. And this is, we should remind folks, this is the film that got uh, Meryl Streep her Best Actress Oscar. Although I think that's yes. the only one. For this nope, film. it's not. Uh, oh, yes, it was the only uh, award for this film. It was right. nominated for a few others, but uh, it didn't win. Um, I think Hamlish <laughs> was nominated. <laughs> although, and... although Meryl Streep won three times. <laughs> <laughs> My timing was off on that joke. It would have been funnier if you'd said it's, the, it's not the only one. And no, you'd say, never mind. That's fine. That's I fine. had humor in my head. I, I love that you did. Yeah. Uh, no, it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay by Alan, Alan Pakula, Best Cinematography by Nestor Almendros, Best Costume Design by Albert Wolski, and Best Original Score by Marvin Hamlish. And Meryl is the only one who ended up winning. She beat out Julie Andrews for Victor Victoria, Jessica Lange for Francis, Sissy Spacek for Missing, and Deborah Winger for An Officer and a Gentleman. Deborah Winger. And, and I, you know... I suppose, as our Meryl Streep series comes to an end, that we should just mention, um, you know, this is the fourth nomination that she's had. It is her second win. This is her first win for uh, Best Actress in the Leading Role. Her last win, as we discussed, was the Best Actress in the Supporting Role for Kramer vs. Kramer. Um, from here, she goes on the very next year to get nominated for uh, Best Actress in Silkwood. In eighty in 85, she gets nominated for Best Actress in Out of Africa. In 87, Best Actress for Ironweed. In 88, Best Actress for Evil Angels. In 90, Best Actress for Postcards from the Edge. 95, Best Actress for The Bridges of Madison County. That actually is the longest spell that she's had of not getting nominated. Five years from 90 to 95. Wow. Uh, in 98, she gets nominated for Best Actress in One True Thing. Music of the Heart is nominated uh, Best Actress in 99. Best Actress in 2002, we've talked about Adaptation. Uh, Best Actress in 2006, The Devil Wears Prada. Best Actress in Doubt, 2008. Best Actress in 2009, Julie and Julia. Best Actress <laughs> in uh, 2011's Iron Lady. And that's where she won her third Oscar. Uh, Best Actress in 2013, August Osage County, and Best Actress in Into the Woods 2014. So, um, oh, and actually, Adaptation was a supporting role. Everything else has been a leading role. Uh, No, sorry, Into the Woods was a supporting role also. But um, 
19 times she's been nominated and she's won three. So as she said, she's not, uh, she doesn't like to look at it as the uh, actress who's, who's been nominated more than any other uh, actor in, in uh, the history of the Oscars, but she's the person who's lost the most times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, is it, is it interesting at all that she ends up after Goldie Hawn really wants to do this that she and wanted this role that she ends up doing Death Becomes Her and and doesn't get nominated? <laughs> and that was in her dry spell. <laughs> yeah, we didn't we didn't mention She 90s. Devil either. No, no. Uh but we did no, uh, we Defending Your Life was in there in that uh, dry spell, so. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, I she's a Wonderful actress. I think there's so many wonderful films that she's done, whether she's been nominated or not, that are worth discussing. So worth discussing. <laughs> worth dis- discussing. You're, you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we should rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com/slash/the-next-reel and sign up and get your account set up, and then you can go over to our website and you can just line them up. Here are all the films we've done. Rank them. Start at the beginning. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, you'll have a great time doing it, and then you can see, when you catch up to us, how this film will do against uh, your list. All right, Sophie's Choice or Kind Hearts and Coronets? Hmm. I mean, if I'm going to rank... <laughs> it, this is hard, because I'm going to have to separate myself from Meryl's performance, Yeah. which, uh, by the way, I didn't mention, uh, Premier Magazine did a... Um, and you know they're the end-all and be-all in film world. But Premier Magazine did the 100 Greatest Movie Performances of All Time. She's ranked as number three, the third best performance per them. Any uh, idea for, what in, the, in forever. In forever. Yeah. Any idea what one and two were? Uh, go ahead and, and spoil them for me. Uh, Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia and Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront. Hmm. Yeah, I do like that Lawrence of Arabia. I think you know that I'm a big fan of that film. I am, yeah, I, I, I'm okay with those. All right. Well, she's right up there. I'm going to go with Kind Hearts and Coronets. I am too, because I'm, I'm not going to rank on Meryl Streep. I have to rank on the film itself, and yeah. Kind Hearts and Coronets is the one. Sophie's Choice or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. <laughs> wow. I don't mean to belittle the subject matter, but this is a real Sophie's <laughs> Choice. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Sophie's Choice on this one. I am too. Uh, sorry, Terry. <laughs> Sophie's Choice or La Vie en Rose. See, now this is an interesting one. Another non-tremendous film with a tremendous performance. Yes. Yes, indeed. I feel like this one is, uh, this one warrants ranking based on the actress's performance. <laughs> Yeah, all right. I don't know if that's fair, but I'm going to say Sophie's Choice. I'm going to say Sophie's Choice, too. Sophie's Choice or Midnight Run? Midnight Run Midnight for me. Run. Sophie's Choice or 500 Days of Summer? 500, 500 Days, days of, of Summer. summer. Absolutely. Sophie's Choice or The Deer Hunter? I'm going to... I'm going to say The Deer, deer Hunter. Hunter. Yeah. Sophie's Choice or The Roaring Twenties? I'm also going to say The Roaring Twenties. Yeah, I'm I'm leaning towards Sophie's choice. Um I mean I just feel like I'm much more interested in Nathan and Sophie. I'm gonna say Sophie's choice. Alright, I'm gonna say Sophie's choice too. I wanna be like Andy. 
<laughs> Sophie's Choice or King's Row. Hmm. Now here I may say King's Row, actually. Why? I found it a more compelling film than The Roaring Twenties. I really, really enjoyed the characters in that film. Hmm. Um. I don't know. I'm a little split on it, though. You know, I'm I am a little split on that too. But boy, okay. I you know I could go for that. I could I could definitely uh, I could do that. I that old that, that was a good story there. That Robert yeah. Cummings did a great job, and Ron Reagan. Come on. That's right. That's All right. right. Okay, that's uh, one twenty four out of two oh one. That's where Sophie's right. Choice lands. Yeah. All right. I mean, I it's a little, it's a, it seems a little low, but it's not for uh, Meryl's performance. That's yeah. for sure. Truly, truly, truly. But it, it does fit for where the film lands. Again, it's not, it, it's not overall a tremendous film. We clearly have some problems with it, but it is full of some really wonderful, wonderful characters and incredible performances. Um, some is, uh, is not quite, uh, the whole is not the sum of its parts in this case. That's right. That's right. What's your letterbox ranking for this one? Uh, I'm going to go three. Yeah, I think I'll say three on this one as well. So, uh, yeah, good. All right. Where do we go from here? We are really shifting gears. (laughs) We're going to jump over, uh, do another short little director series with uh, Bong Joon-ho. Oh, this is good. What are we starting with? We are starting with his, his... Kind of a, it's a it's a creepy little horror romp uh, called The Host. <laughs> I I love this movie. I do. I watched <laughs> it. I feel like I watched it on a dare. Although I think I dared myself. It was one of those like late night kind of Netflix things, maybe. Uh huh. And I just pressed play because I saw a tentacle and I thought I don't usually do these kinds of things. I'm gonna give it a shot. And I really <laughs> just kind of got a crush on this movie uh so i'm very much looking forward to talking about this one next week i watched it and i don't remember liking it very much so i'm actually really curious to revisit it and see if i like it more this time that's funny maybe it'll end up your guilty pleasure or my guilty pleasure i'll feel guilty about it and you'll be (laughs) you'll be right (laughs) oh i guess we'll see i guess we'll see next week all right well until then uh, i gotta go to bed all right i'm gonna go hang out at coney island for a bit Uh, mine comes from Kelly C. She gives it one star. She said, Sophie's choice is a bad choice. She says, this movie wasn't about Sophie's choice. It was about her crazy lover and his obsession. I was disappointed with the movie as it wasn't what I expected it to be. So I wonder if we saw the same movie <laughs> is my thing. <laughs> Not only was it about Sophie's choice, it should have been called Sophie's Choices. She's making choices everywhere. So who's am I going to kiss tonight? Who? gonna lay in the bed with who's gonna feed me and get me healthy every day which which road will i take to get to this place it's all about sophie's choices Sophie's choosing things all over the place this movie is if this movie is anything it's truth in advertising 
<laughs> What's yours? Well, it's interesting because it seems to be a common thread. Brenmar says, gave it one star and said, no, next, please. Her fake accent is annoying. The southern sidekick has almost zero personality. And the boyfriend's neurosis turned out to be the subject of the story. I bought this on the strength of the reviews and a small preview clip. Lesson learned. So what are you going to buy it based on next time? <laughs> what your... What has the crappiest reviews? That's what I'm going to buy. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Clearly, somebody doesn't appreciate good acting if they think that her accent is fake in any way. Yes, that's the truth. Yeah. But it's interesting. Truth. Like, this yeah. is another one. Boyfriend's neurosis is the subject of the story. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. All right. Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.